Good morning, church. If you haven't already found a seat, please uh, take a seat with us this morning. Can I give you a freebie? Yep, this has nothing to do with the message, okay? You ready? One of my favorite passages is John chapter 14. We studied it this week in Life Group. It's been something that has been super impactful over the years. I felt like the Holy Spirit brought it to mind this morning. I'd love to share it with you if that's all right. John chapter 14, Jesus is looking at his disciples. This is hours before he's arrested and betrayed by Judas. And he looks at his, his friends, his younger brothers, and he says, hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many rooms. And he says, when I go, when I leave this place, this earth, and my death, and I go and ascend to the right hand of the Father, what I'm doing while I'm there is so much better. I'm going to prepare a room for you in my Father's house, which has many rooms. I was reminded of that this week as my life group, we were reading through that passage a few years back. I was a student pastor in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. One of the first guys that we got to see give his life to the Lord, he was in sixth grade. His name's Matthew Matthew, here's a passage of teaching about Jesus coming back. That one day we have this great promise that our high priest who is interceding on our behalf of all of eternity will come back for his people. And while he is there interceding on our behalf, he is creating a room in the house with our father. After the service, I was talking to Matthew about the gospel and what that meant. And I said, hey man, I'm just, I'm gonna let you pray. Right? I'm going to let you say whatever you want to God. Like there's no magic formula, special words that you have to say. Just I'm going to let you talk to him. The words that came out of this young man's mouth, 11, 12 years old. I just want to be in my father's house. I want to be in God's house. And I was reminded that this morning, this week, that this morning I hope that someone would look and say, I just want to be in my father's house that man, I get to be with him in all of eternity in his house one day. If you don't know Jesus today, if you don't know that kind of relationship in which God is father, we just said it, I've known you as father, that God is a loving father and he wants you and he wants you to be in his house. Thank you. We'll jump into the text this morning. My name is Braden Rodriguez. I'm our student 1825 pastor. Again, nothing to do with what we're gonna talk about today, but... And God is so good, and he wants you. This morning, uh, we're gonna be taking a break from our series called Kingdom Values. Uh, unfortunately, Cale uh, is sick this week, and he had to miss this morning. Uh, and so here I am with uh, something a little bit different, but uh, Kingdom Values we've been talking about uh, over this last week. We'll continue to talk about in the weeks to come when Cale returns. But this morning, if you have your Bible, you can go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, as you flip there. Let me go ahead and give you just some context to the book of 2 Samuel, and let me give you just an overview of where we're going to be this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 12 is a part of this greater work known as 1 and 2 Samuel. These two books cover a good bit of history. It's technically one of the history books of the Old Testament. That's how it's classified, uh, and it follows this story of this first guy named Samuel. Samuel is a prophet in Israel. It's a pretty great guy, uh, and man, just follows the Lord and does some really awesome things. But then we see that Samuel, uh, tracing his story, starts essentially the um, the the, the monarchy of Israel, right? The people of Israel come to Samuel and they're like, we want a king. And he's like, guys, I don't think you know what you're asking for. That's not really a good idea. But God says, let them have their king. And so he anoints Saul, the first king. And we see all throughout the book of 1 Samuel, Saul is like, 
okay. Um, he does some good things, but mo- mostly Saul, the first king of Israel, goes down as not such an amazing king for the people of God. And so because Saul is not an amazing king, he is replaced by not his son, not someone in his family, but someone of a different lineage. His name is King David. You've probably heard of King David before. King David, probably the best king in all of Israel's history. And that's where essentially 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel begins. 1 Samuel, Saul's trying to kill David, unfortunately. 2 Samuel, Saul dies. King David becomes the true rightful king of Israel. And then you get to the end and you get to see a little bit about David's son, Solomon. So 2 Samuel is this historical book and we get to see all the amazing acts in which um, David commits, right? David wins all these amazing battles for the Lord. He brings the Ark of the Covenant back into the land of Israel, which is like a huge deal, like this representation of God's presence and God's, all of this stuff that like they went through the wilderness. David takes that Ark, brings it back into the city and it's an amazing thing. He has a... Uh, um, his master's like grandson, his name's Mephibosheth. Any pregnant ladies in the house need a boy name? Mephibosheth's a good one, I'm just saying. Uh, David has Mephibosheth and he's like, what he could do is slaughter him. He could slaughter the entire lineage of Saul so that no one would ever test his throne and yet he is good and he lets his master's family members sit at his own table. And David's an amazing king, so much so that he has this realization at one point in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He says, God, you've been in this wandering tabernacle tent thing that we talked about a few weeks ago for so long. How is it good and right for me to live in luxury and an amazing house when, God, you live in a tent? It's not cool. He says, God, I want to make you a house. God responds to the prophet. He says, David, I don't need you to make me a house. I don't need a home. My, my presence doesn't need to dwell somewhere physical on earth. I'm just, I'm just dwelling already, David. All of this is mine anyway. But you know what? Because of how righteous you are, David, because of how good you've been, he's like, you know what? You have too much blood on your hands there from battle. I'll let your son build me a house. But here's the bigger thing that God does in that passage. He looks at David and he says, I want to build you a house, an everlasting house, one in which your sons will reign on the throne forever, which points to Jesus and we'll get there. But God makes this covenant promise with David. He's like, David, I'm making a promise that can't be broken. On my name, I'm gonna build you up a lineage forever. And David's a pretty awesome guy until 2 Samuel chapter 11. A very common story that many of you have heard. If you haven't heard, I'll spoil it a little bit. 2 Samuel chapter 11, David has a downfall. The first thing that's the problem is David is supposed to be out at war is what the passage says. It says the kings were supposed to be at war and David's sitting back at his home. And as it would be, David looks out and he sees a woman bathing and he says, hmm, who is that? Calls her, commits adultery with her, impregnates her, and then begins this great cover-up that David tries to do. He calls her husband back, which is actually one of David's close men. It's one of his mighty men, one of his 30 best guys in all of Israel. Calls him back from the line. He says, hey, how about you just go home and hang out with your wife, you know? And he's like, hey, go hang out with your wife. Go, go, go. But this man is so faithful to David, so faithful to his brothers on the battlefield, he says, I can't, I can't go home. I'll sleep at your doorstep. And so he does. And so David sends a letter back by the very hand of this man. And the letter says this, he says, when Uriah, this is the man's name, he says, when Uriah gets back, put him on the front line, let him get in the heat of battle and then everyone draw away from him, let him be struck down. And sure enough, it happens the way David writes it in the letter. Again, no one has a question about how corrupt this is, but he lets it happen anyway. The commander of the army 
and Uriah dies. David calls Bathsheba, his wife, back to his house. He marries her, and so the cover-up's good, right? No one knows until chapter 12, which is where we'll pick up today. New prophet on the scene, Nathan, comes to David. He begins to tell David this story. He says, David, there was this rich man and there was this poor man. And this rich man, David, he had all of this stuff. He's a pretty neat guy, right? He's got all these flocks and all of these goats and all of these great things. He owns a lot. And then you've got this poor man, David. This poor man, he has this ewe lamb. This little bitty lamb, he's so cute, you know, just by, you know, he's, he's great. He lets it grow up with the family. He's essentially now the family dog, this little ewe lamb. I can imagine the kids sitting around and the lamb coming to lick their face, which is disgusting. I don't know why some of you let your dogs do it. You dog lovers, they're cleaner than human mouths. Not really, I'm sorry, it's nasty. Anyway, but he lets the lamb, you know, grow up with the family and it's awesome. And the turn in this passage is the prophet's telling this story and he says the rich man takes that poor man's family lamb and he slaughters it. And David is indignant. He is angry beyond compare. He says, that man deserves to die. The rich man deserves death. He's like, he needs to return multiple fold what he's taken. In chapter seven, or uh, chapter 12, verse seven, the prophet looks at David. He says, you're that man. You are that man, David. This morning, the main point of the text, main point of the sermon is this, is that when we fail, because we will, David's an amazing guy, and yet he failed. When we fail, we must run to God. We must repent. That's what we're gonna see from the passage this morning, that in our failure, the one place that we should go is running back to the arms of a father who is good and is loving. And when we go there, we know our failure is not final, that we don't end in a corrupt state, but we end in this, this life in which God has, has changed us. And our failure no longer defines who we are. David is not defined as the one who has committed adultery with Bathsheba. But we'll get there. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. Would you speak to us through your word this morning? God, would you prepare our hearts? God, would you remove anything out of the way that needs to be gone? Would you let your word produce 30, 60, and 100 fold as you've promised? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 12, again starting in verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and, he has take, and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up an evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. If we look at those last couple of verses, that actually does happen. That is what God is telling him will happen. He says, you're gonna have some issues in your household. You're gonna have some unrest. Some people are gonna start taking your concubines and wives. Actually, one of David's sons does this and causes a lot of problems for David later on, but that's not what we're gonna focus on here in this part of the passage. We're gonna focus on is the very neglect in which David has committed against God. David has failed. David has broken at least three of the 10 commandments. 
not just the like, don't boil your goat in its mother's milk or like, don't like shave your temple hair, like certain ways. Like he breaks three of at least the big 10 commandments that God gives. He covets after his neighbor's wife, Uriah and Bathsheba. He has Uriah killed and also he commits adultery. So David takes three of God's greatest commands and breaks them. He sinned to say the least. He has abused his power at minimum. He's committed gross, negligent sin towards God. And if that weren't enough, it says that he essentially abuses God's grace. Remember David is what the prophet says. Remember David, that Saul chased after you and you wouldn't dare take his life and God gave you grace upon grace by not letting Saul take yours. And yet you would reach your hand out and kill your friend. You've blatantly disregarded the grace of God. And he says, well, David, if that's not enough, you breaking the commands, disregarding God's grace, you've taken your neighbor's wife. He said, you have your own wives. And when Saul died, we gave you his marriage alliances. We gave you his household, his kingdom, right? To, to, to keep all of these good political standings amongst the neighboring nations. And yet you've taken another man's wife. And then he goes on to say, and much more that God has given you. I can imagine the conversation going a little like this with the prophet. Hey, David, you remember that time that lion came when you were a shepherd, you know, and like God like strengthened you to like kill it? What about that bear when it came to the flock and you killed that bear? What about that giant? You remember his name's Goliath. He stood, you know, however many cubits high and you took that little stone and that little leather strap and you threw a rock and you dropped a giant. You don't remember how good God has been to you? Lions, bears, and giants, oh my. If that weren't enough, David, God has given you so much more. And you've looked back in the face of God and you've spit in it. I know what you're thinking. Wow, what a way to start a sermon, right? This is really deep. This is really heavy. Here's the reality is we all have failure. We've all sinned and fallen short of the very glorious standard in which God has set before us. None of us could attain it. I love this passage a lot because I feel this way. I've failed before God. I have sinned before God. Matt Chandler at the Village Church, he, he uh, did this thing with his congregation years ago. He, he, he said, let's take a 10 commandment pop quiz. And he ran through the 10 commandments and he's like, the best anyone did is probably two out of 10. And if we were to run through the 10 commandments right now, we have all broken at least one. And it says that if we've broken the law of God, we're now accountable to it all. And for the wages of our sin equals death. You ever lied against a friend? That's one. You ever uh, commit murder and you're like, no, I didn't kill anybody. That's, we're, we're in good standing. Jesus would go on to say, if you got hatred in your heart against someone, if you looked at someone and said, raka, which means empty-headed fool, essentially layman's terms, idiot, it's like you've committed this crime in your heart. You've already murdered this man in your heart. And you're like, wow, I probably called someone an idiot on the way here at the four-way stop because they didn't know how to use it. I understand. <laughs> We've all failed God's law. We can't stand up to it. If that weren't enough, we disregarded the very grace of God. That we've abused God's grace. That he's looked at us and he's given us grace, he's forgiven us, and then we said, well, I'll sin anyway. Paul would look at the Roman church and they're saying, well, is grace a free license to sin, Paul? And he says, by no means. Don't take the grace of God to continue on in sin. It doesn't make sense. We've disregarded God's grace. We've abused God's grace. And if that weren't enough, 
we've done so much more. And I know what you're thinking. Where do we go from here? What now? What do we do if we failed God's law, if we've sinned against him? The passage continues on, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan responded back to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. When we fail, we must run back to God. We must genuinely repent. And when there, we are forgiven. There's a character study in which you could do uh, in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. You could go look at Saul's life and you could go look at David's life. There's a turning point in Saul's life that, that could go in the right trajectory but sends him on a downward spiraling path in which David gets the kingdom. 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul also commits sin, disregards God's grace and all of these things. And not in this way, but in another way. He offers unholy sacrifice in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And the prophet comes and he's like, what in the world are you doing? Why have you done this? Saul responds back with a litany of excuses. He says, well, because you weren't here, well, because of this, well, because of that. And there, the character study, he doesn't genuinely feel sorrowful or repentant over his sin where David does. That Saul is just like, well, because you weren't here, that's why I did what God told me not to do. And he begins to pass the buck on everybody else. And how often do we do this? Why, well, Brayden, if you would have known what they said to me in algebra class, that's the reason, as the kids would say, I clapped back. Right? Well, Brayden, if you knew what kind of week I had at work, it made sense that I went out to the bar and I had one too many. Well, Brayden, if you would have known what my spouse did or did not do for me, that's why I went and watched that online. That's why I went and talked to that person. That's why I failed in the way I failed. And we begin to pass the blame onto everyone else but ourselves. But yet David in this passage says, no. Different than my predecessor, it's no one else's fault but my own. David, the writer of the majority of the Psalms, writes Psalm 51 as a response to what has happened here. If you flip to Psalm 51, you don't have to flip there, but it says in the little tagline above it, the little title above it, the Psalm in which David writes because he's been found out, because he has been caught in his sin with Bathsheba and this adultery and this murder and this lying. This is what David writes. This is what true repentance, genuine repentance sounds like, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, my delight, uh, you delight in truth and inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me. I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let these bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. O God, renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. 
And then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings? Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is what true repentance sounds like. That when we've failed, we look back to our creator, our father who is good and loving and kind, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and say, God, I know that I have wronged you. God, I know that I'm broken on the inside and you are the only one to wash and make me clean. God, I recognize that even in my birth, I was radically corrupt, that I was sinful in nature, and yet, God, you are the one who can make it all right. No one else here is to blame for my sin. It's me. I am the problem. Lord, I have broken your law, broken your command, but God, would you clean me? God, Would you make me whiter than snow? I love the song. Jesus paid it all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We sang it last week, but we didn't sing the bridge. This was one of my favorite parts. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life from the dead. That when we run to God, we repent, we are forgiven, and we stand justified, adopted, and sanctified before a holy God. That he changes the trajectory of the way we're going. David knows this. He runs to him. Picking up in the story, verse 14 through 15, it's not quite done. Nathan says, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Nathan went to his house. The Lord afflicted the child, and Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And to be honest, I wish we could skip this part of the passage. If anyone were to continue on reading, or if I would have skipped it, you'd have been like, wow, that was a cop-out. This is the hardest part of the passage, for me at least. But what I know, what I've seen in the scriptures is that God is good. And I don't understand all the ways of God, nor will I ever always, or nor when I cross into eternity, will I understand everything that he did. I don't get to cross into eternity and become some finite being who knows, or infinite being who knows everything. I'm still finite. I'm still his creation. I don't pretend to understand all which God is doing in this passage, but what I do see in this passage and in the entirety of the scripture is that God is good and gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love, and his first nature is love. What I don't see is God throwing out some cosmic lightning bolts for the sin of David. What I don't see is some cosmic transference of 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 the balance of sin onto someone else. What I see is this happening, is the, a commentator read it this way, is there's a difference between punishment and consequence. This is a consequence of sin. That God is not laughing at David and is like, well, because you're not dead, your son will die. What I see is a painstaking father saying, this is a broken world in which you've walked into and now your sin has consequences. Our sin has consequences. Some small, some great. And yet God, in his nature, he says, when you've broken my law, in that Ten Commandments passage, he says, yes, sin might have ripple effects down to the third and fourth generation, but he says, I'll show love to the thousands. That love is in God's first nature. And yet, at the same time, he is holy, and we are not. And our sin does not get to coexist with a holy God. And consequences for sin, yes, do play out. But know this this morning is that God wants to forgive you, not harm you. Many of us have run from God. If I go to him, he's not gonna forgive me. He's just gonna hurt me. 
He's going he's gonna to come against me. He's going to ruin my life. God's going to harm me in every way. And you're scared of a heavenly father. And yet the Bible is very clear. It's, it's, no, just come. I want to forgive you. I want to make a place for you in the house. It says if you've come and you've confessed your sin before God, it says he's faithful and just to forgive. That he will wash you clean. So don't run from him, run towards him. Praise God, the passage doesn't end in verse 15 either. Verse 16, it continues. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of the house stood beside him to raise him from the ground. But he, uh, uh, excuse me, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. And on the seventh day, the child did die. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then, we, how then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do some harm to himself. Then David saw that his servants were whispering together and David understood that the child was dead. And David said to the servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is. Then David arose from the earth and he washed and anointed himself and he changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. So he went to his own house he then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You have fasted, and you've wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child has died, you arose, and you ate food? He said, while the child was still alive, this is David talking, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. David knows the very first nature of God as he is very gracious and kind and merciful and then David says this amazing thing in verse 23, but now he's died, he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him and he shall not return to me. In the aftermath of this failure, in the aftermath of this repentance, in the aftermath of all of this happening, David, yes, stands justified, forgiven before the Lord, but rather than go sit on his throne like a king would in pomp or in arrogance, he chooses to put his face in the dirt Rather than accept things as the way they are, he begins to fast and weep and pray. Rather than wallow in self-pity, David goes to the house of the Lord and he worships. There's something to glean, I think, from David's actions here is that in the midst of failure and sin and all of these things, that we would go and run before a holy God rather than an arrogant sit back away from him. No, we would put our face to the ground and say, Lord, I have wronged you. We would begin to pray. We would begin to weep and fast and we would begin to worship him. He stands forgiven and he worships. He knows God is the only one worthy of the worship, that he would go nowhere else. When we are forgiven, we should worship. When we are made right before a holy God, it is cause enough to raise a hand and worship to him, to praise him, to lift his name on high. Again, we said, when we are in God and forgiven, our failure is not final. But David in Acts chapter 13, 22, it says that David is a man or was a man after God's own heart. I'm convinced the reason why they say this, is there's no biblical evidence for this, but I'm convinced the reason they would be able to say this is because of this very moment, this very action, that David would sin and wrong God, own up to it, come back to him and say, Lord, would you forgive me and stand forgiven and then worship. That David chased God's heart in this happening. 
And then we get a beautiful theology, an aside for the moment. Verse 23 is that it says that his son, though he may not return to David, David will go to him. Beautiful theology here. That our lost little ones, we get to be with our Lord, our creator, have a room in the house as a loved son and daughter. The miscarriage, the abortion, the sickness that led to death. My brother who died as an infant when I was four or five years old. I'm encouraged by this passage in particular. And then you point to the New Testament when Jesus looks at the crowds and say, let the kids come. He says, don't cause the children to fall into sin. He's like, it's real bad if you do. So much so, God showing his love towards our children more than we ever could. Jesus would look back at his disciples and the crowd and say, why don't you become like them? Why don't you have the faith of a young child? That this passage gives us a beautiful aside again for our lost little ones. Maybe it's not a consolation of what happens and the consequence and the aftermath of sin, but man, it is encouraging to know that God loves our children more than we ever could. And that he has an eye on them and a hand with them. The passage ends and we end here. Verses 24 through 25. David confronted his wife, or comforted his wife, not confronted, wow. Uh, comforted his wife Bathsheba, went into her, he lay with her. And she bore a son and they called him Solomon. Love this part. And the Lord loved him. And he sent a message by Nathan, the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah, which means beloved by the Lord because of the Lord. The passage doesn't end in 23 with some piffy hope or tragedy or anything like that. It continues on in 24, and God begins to let things play out more. If we remember back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant promise to David. Remember, we said it. David, I'll build your house, and you'll have a son to reign on the throne forever. It's just like God, even in the midst of our sin, that he would keep his promises. That he would look back at David and say, David, I made you a promise in which I will not break. And rather than let David die for his sin, which he should, or let another son of another one of his wives be the next king, that Solomon, this king, this son, would get to sit on the throne. That God would let this happen. That God would move and say, Solomon will progenerate all the way down to the lineage of Jesus. And Jesus will be the one to sit on the throne forevermore that he would die for our sins, the pure and innocent one for us. I'm gonna keep my covenant promise, David. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, it says this about God. It says, when we are faithless, he remains faithful and he cannot deny himself. It is in very nature of God for him to be a covenant promise, keeping, loving God who is faithful even in the midst of our unfaithfulness. And Jesus is a part of that covenant promise that he would step out of all of eternity and he would get on that cross, bear our sin, our shame for the saints of all eternity, past, present, and future, and say, I've died for you. The great exchange, your sin on my shoulders so that you might be free, that you might live, that you could be in the Father's house. A beautiful, beautiful testament to what God is doing this passage pointing straight to the gospel. I'd encourage you to bow your heads, close your eyes, think with me just for a few minutes before we end this morning.
To be honest, this is a very heavy passage, but yet a very beautiful one. Because I think we would all say that we stand as David, that we failed. And yet, though that is true, know this, is that we can run before a holy God and just say, would you forgive me? And that he would, that he would heal, that he would clean. He would show his goodness, his mercifulness, his kindness, his loving nature towards us. This morning, believer, if you've run headlong into failure, you've run headlong away from God, would you turn this morning? Would you turn back to him? Would you say, Lord, I've wronged you. No, no one else is to blame. Just me. Would you forgive me? Maybe this morning, as we talked about at the beginning, maybe you would say, man, I don't, I don't know God as father. I've never known him as a friend. And today you want to. Today, maybe you've heard for the first time, God loves you. He wants you. Would you let him show that love, show that want towards you? It says in the scriptures, today is the day of salvation. And that the way one could be saved is to believe in your heart that Jesus came and died for your sin and mine, that he would bury your sin and shame, that he would go to the grave and rise again and live forever so that you might also get to live with him. And that you would believe that in your heart and you would confess with your mouth that he is your Lord. That you would follow him anywhere that you're in. If that's where you're at today, again, there's no magic words to say. It's the heart condition. My friend Matthew, at 11 years old, he said, I just want to, I just want to be in God's house. I'm in. I'll follow him. I just want to be there with him. Those would be beautiful words to say this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we stand, sit, pray, sing in these moments, God, would you, know, uh, would you let us know how much you want to forgive, how much you want to love, God, that we would run away from our sin and run into your arms. That we would know you as father, we would know you as friend. That if any person in this place who walked in who wouldn't or didn't know you as that, God, that they would today. Father, we love you. We praise you. We give you all glory. We give you all honor because you're the only one worthy of it. God, we ask that you would speak to us. Would you move? in these moments. In Jesus' name.